stories. Just such an exciting time of the year for us, uh, our missions emphasis. You wouldn't believe it, what we do during missions emphasis. We emphasize missions here. And we emphasize our partnerships, our local and our regional and global partnerships. And uh, quite honestly, it's just, it's just exciting. Thanks, Tim. Uh, it's exciting to hear these stories. Uh, if you happen to have grabbed a bulletin on your way in, I'm going to try and move that guy a little bit. If you happen to have grabbed a bulletin on your way in, you'll see a little slip of paper in there. And we also have these hanging out the back of the room. And this is uh, called a Mission Faith Promise Card. And this is something, quite honestly, it's kind of crazy that we do as a church each year. Uh, we raise a lot of money, and we want to give it away. We want to give it to missions partners. We want to give it to communities, local, regional, global communities, for the advancement of the gospel. And this year, we're trying to raise $109,000 as part of that. And this is something we're really excited about as a staff. This is something we're really excited about, elders and deacons in the church, something we've stacked hands on. say, yeah, this is worthy. Uh, this is worthy of our investment. This is worthy of our support. In fact, Trevor Cook, our youth director, has already offered to pledge half of that amount, half of that $109,000. I think he stepped out for a second. I was going to tease him, and uh, he's, uh, yeah, we'll tell him about that later. We'll tell him when he gets back what he's pledged. But he said, you know, he wants other people to get a chance to pitch in on this too. And so uh, fill this out. I really encourage you. Talk with your families. Pray together. Uh, I had a conversation with a family last week. I thought this was so cool. They were telling me they're, they're a couple of kids. Uh, they're uh, six to 10-year-old age kids. They wanted to uh, give a portion of their allowance towards mission. And I said, that's awesome. That's so exciting. And in my head, I'm thinking, I would never have done that as a kid. Wow, that's really cool. So we're going to pray right now. Pray for our missions partners. Pray that God would bless our morning together. Pray for our time of teaching. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for all that you provide to us, the opportunities, the relationships, even this time, this time right now, Lord. As we come in here, we know that uh, the world we live in is, uh, is a difficult place at times, uh, that there are challenges, there are obstacles, there's sadness, there's lament, but there's so much joy, God. We worship a God who loves to take broken things and make them beautiful. Thank you, God, that you have done that in our lives. And thank you, Lord, that you've given us this moment right here to hear from you. Lord, we pray for our missions partners locally, globally. Lord, bless them and keep them. Make straight paths for them. Everything they do, everywhere they go, Lord, remind them that you are with them, that you love them. We pray, Lord, that the kingdom of God would, would reign here on earth as it does in heaven. We pray, Lord, that we would be a part of that. So teach us, Lord. Your, your servants, your children are eager to hear from you. We're listening. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the second week of our Missions Emphasis series, and uh, we have titled this series, Against All Odds. And it's really a study about the early church. It's a study of this community of faith, men and women, some 2,000 years ago, that somehow, some way, left this indelible mark on the world. And we're calling it Against All Odds because, quite honestly, if you were a betting man of the first century or a betting woman of the first century, you weren't putting money on the early church. Nobody was really expecting the early church to survive, much less thrive. And somehow, someway, against all odds, God used this group of nobodies with no resources, no credibility, nothing to their name, from the middle of nowhere, the edge of the Roman Empire, a group of nobodies from the middle of nowhere to change the world. That's a phrase we throw around a lot nowadays, go and, you know, go and change the world. Quite literally, change the world, transform the world that we live in today. And here we are, some 2,000 years later, across an ocean, on a different continent, in a different country, in a completely different culture, speaking a different language, talking about these nobodies from the middle of nowhere, against all odds. And so last week was how God, against all odds, uses fearful individuals, 
even individuals who have failed a lot in the past and actually works redemptively through that, that the power of the cross can make a coward bold. The power of the cross can take what looks like failure and actually make it succeed. And this week, uh, (laughs) building on fear and failure is great topics to cover. We're going to talk about division and conflict in the church. Hooray. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Joseph, division in the church, conflict in the church. What are you going to talk about? There, there's, no, there's no data there. How are you going to have a sermon? And that's the sad truth, isn't it? it? It should be difficult to find examples of division and conflict. It should be difficult for us to raise this topic in the church. But sadly, it's really, really easy. It's the church is a community that should be maybe marked by compassion and patience. Love, unity is, is often known to engender these memories of pain and anger, embarrassment, hurt, disappointment. And quite honestly, it leaves many people with, with war stories, with, with scars that they carry, things that they carry around uh, from years past, bad experiences, hurtful experiences, disappointment, anger. I recall when I uh, was about 20 years old, I had just come to faith as a follower of Jesus back in college, and I really devoted my life to Jesus through InterVarsity, a campus ministry that I was a part of, and uh, I was really eager to get plugged into a local church. I knew that was kind of the next step for my faith development, so I asked several of my friends, you know, hey, where are you going to church? What should I do? And so I joined a, a small local Baptist church not too far from campus with several of my friends, and I really wanted to get plugged in. I really wanted to get connected into that community, and I heard they were having choir auditions. Wow, perfect. I sing in the shower all the time. I sing in the car all the time. Put those things together. They will be lucky to have me on their choir. This will be great. I'll get to meet people, make some connections, uh, sing a little bit. It'll be perfect. And so I went to choir auditions, signed up with several of my friends, and it was a pretty good gathering. There was about a dozen, uh, maybe a couple dozen folks who were there. And I'll never forget the, the choir director that was running the auditions. Because if you hear the phrase sweet old church lady, I mean, this was her. Like, this was her. She was adorable. She was four foot nothing. She had, you know, giant thick glasses, just this perpetual smile on her face. And she's going around, this big grin, meeting everyone, introducing, you know, learning names. And she's running the auditions. And so we go down the list, and uh, it gets to me, and I sing up. And guys, I belt it out. I sing with every ounce of vocal talent I got. I crushed it. And everyone around there is just looking at me when I'm done. They're staring. I'm thinking, wow, they're really impressed. <laughs> As they're looking at me, the sweet old church lady, sweet old choir director, she comes up to me, big grin on her face. And she says, Joseph? And I said, yes, ma'am. Joseph, right here, name tag. If you're looking for a new soloist, right here, Joseph. She has this big grin on her face. She says, Joseph, I want you to know something. The Bible tells us to make a joyful noise. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus wants you to hit some of the right notes, too. (laughs) As she walks away. Ouch! Ouch, Grandma, that stings! Wow, do you want any pepper with that saltiness? That was not fun. That was embarrassing. It was kind of mean. She was absolutely right. I was awful. Just awful. Had no right to be singing in a choir. No right to really be singing... Uh, in the shower, much less in front of people. She was absolutely right. It kind of hurt. kind of embarrassed me a little bit. Now, I can look back on that. I can laugh. I'm not holding a huge grudge. I did key her car afterwards, so that, I got, I got, <laughs> no. I can look back on that and laugh. That's not a huge deal. But for every church story, 
that you can look back on and laugh at, and there's a hundred more that no one's laughing at. I mean, there's, there's a thousand more that leave some really terrible scars. And that's the reality of the world we live in. Let me ask you a question. Do you have any war stories? Do you have any church community war stories? Do you have any scars you've been carrying around? Have you ever found yourself to be profoundly disappointed in a church community? Maybe it's something they did. I can't believe they would say that. I can't believe they would make that decision. That's so malicious. That's so cruel. So callous. How dare they do that? Or maybe something they didn't do. A noble endeavor they didn't adopt. Some great cause they didn't rally around. Something that was worthy of speaking out against where the church remained silent. Have you ever been disappointed in a church community? Well, you probably have a war story. You probably have scars from that. Maybe it's not a whole church community. Maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's a church leader. Have you ever just been angry at a church leader? Angry, disappointed, frustrated, hurt by something that someone who is in leadership of a church has said or done? This person, this person is supposed to be leading people into relationship with God, and this is how they treat people? It's despicable. It's hurtful. Maybe it's a pastor, an elder, Maybe it's a small group leader, community you've been a part of in the past, and someone who was supposed to represent Jesus to you did everything but that. Yeah, that leaves scars. That creates, it creates a war story. And maybe you've got a lot of these. Maybe you've got a lot of these scars that built up over time, and you're sitting here today, you're thinking, you know what, Joseph? I'm hanging by a thread with church community. I'm hanging by a thread with other Christians. God, I'm fine with. Jesus, I'm okay with. These Christians drive me nuts. They frustrate me. They hurt me, and I'm tired of the drama, and I'm tired of the conflict, and I'm tired of the division. Now, here's the deal. If that's you, if that's you, if you're carrying around scars, if you've got war stories, I want you to hear a couple things. You're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. And there's a passage we're going to look at today that I wholeheartedly believe is for you. If you're carrying those scars around, this passage is for you. I believe it is for you because it's about people just like you, just like me. People who have found themselves disappointed or hurt or crushed or confused by something Christians have done or churches have said. So we're going to look at a passage together. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6, just a little little stretch of this here. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at the first verse here together. I'll have it on the screen in just a moment. You can follow along as I read. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Let's pause right there, set a little bit of context. There's growth. That's exciting, right? Number of disciples was increasing. That means there's more people following Jesus. That means the early church, this church of Acts, is growing. That can be really, really, really exciting. And that can also be really, really confusing. Because change can be confusing. Change can be scary. And in the midst of change, in the midst of growth, sometimes people can fall through the cracks. And that can be really disappointing. That can be really hurtful. And that's the situation that we see here. That's as exciting as growth is. This change is creating whole new problems that the church had not had to deal with before. 
And we have two groups here. We have the Hellenistic Jews that are described, and they, they have a complaint. They have a complaint against the Hebraic Jews. And their complaint is not, it's not a light thing, right? This isn't what kind of coffee they're serving, who gets the choir solo, who's got the nice parking spot, the better parking spot. It's not that kind of complaint. This is a life and death complaint. This is a complaint that's not abstract or theoretical. This is deeply, deeply personal. Their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Imagine for a second, maybe your grandma, an elderly individual, an elderly woman who you have immense respect for, someone who has spent their life pouring into others, sacrificing for others, and she has found herself, whether health or financial challenges, is unable to really care for herself and has become dependent on others. And the church, your church, has pledged to support people just like this, and nothing happens. She falls through the cracks. It's more than just hurt feelings. Lives are in danger. Or maybe it's a different type of widow. Imagine you, you are a single mother. Some of you are single mothers. Or imagine you know a single mother, someone whose husband is gone. He died in the war. He succumbed to illness. He left. Maybe even left because of this woman's faith in Jesus. And he said, I'm gone. And you can take care of the kids and you can manage this on your own. Imagine you know a single mom like that, and the church has pledged to support, to care for, to provide for someone like this, and then nothing happens. How would you feel? Would you feel hurt? Would you feel angry? Would you feel bitter and confused? Would you feel those things? You probably would. And the early church absolutely felt these things. This isn't abstract. This isn't theoretical conflict. This is real life and death conflict that the early church was facing. Now, even broader than how personal this is, there's baggage here, right? There's baggage for both sides of this coming into this conflict, and this is true for all of us. We all bring our baggage into every conflict, into every situation, every community that we are a part of. You see, the Hellenistic Jews, what does that mean? Well, they were Jews of the, they were Jewish people of the diaspora. Uh, That's the dispersion. See, the Judea and Jerusalem had been conquered so many times over a period of centuries that the Jewish people, many of them had been taken away. Many of them had fled in the midst of conflict or military defeat and had been scattered throughout the Greek world, kind of the the legacy of Alexander. And they had adopted this Hellenistic, this Greek culture. They spoke Greek. They had Greek cultural uh, identity. They they didn't read the Hebrew scriptures in the same way they read the Greek text, the Septuagint. Totally different culture, totally different background. A background, in fact, of being taken advantage of, of being moved around like pawns on a chessboard. And here they are. They've they've come to Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem. They have this background. They have this history, and they're following Jesus. But here we go again. People are letting us down. People are taking advantage of us. People are overlooking us. And look who's doing it. It's these Hebraic Jews. This was the 12 apostles. These were Jewish people of Hebrew descent, of background, of culture. They studied Hebrew. Uh, They studied the Old Testament in Hebrew. They read God's word in this language. They have these cultural expectations. And all of the church leaders were Hebraic Jews. These were the disciples. These were the first followers of Jesus. And they had a history. They had some baggage. They had things that preceded them. You see, if you just skim through the Bible, I mean, just, just like glance through the Gospels, the descriptions of these uh, disciples and their interactions and their relationship with Jesus, it's pretty pathetic I mean, story after story after story, you're hearing about how they failed. 
how they messed up, how they got it wrong. If you go to Luke 9, if you go to Luke 9, you can look this up later. You can check this out later. It's worth looking at. There's an 11 stretch passage, 11 verse uh, passage. In 11 verses, the disciples make three huge mistakes all around conflict, all around community. The first thing they do is they get into a big argument about which one of them is the greatest. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. You guys have early church leader written all over you. Yeah, they get an argument amongst each other about who is better than whom. Then, after Jesus tries to explain to them, no, actually the greatest among you is the one who serves, after they've argued which one is the greatest, then one of them pipes up and says, oh, hey, Jesus, by the way, uh, we saw someone doing great things in your name, healing and miracles and incredible things in your name. Yeah, we told him to knock it off because he's not one of us. He's not like us. He's not in our group. So we told him to get out of here. We intimidated him. We rebuked him. (laughs) After Jesus walks through that experience with them, then they're passing by a village. They're passing by a Samaritan village, a group of outsiders, uh, people who are different than them, and that group, that village isn't particularly nice to them. So they say, hey, Jesus, we got an idea. Can we call down fire from heaven to nuke them off the face of the planet? You know, men, women, children. Can we do that? Is that okay? Jesus goes, no, no, is this opposite day? Are you guys even listening to anything I'm saying? They got it wrong so many times. Have you ever been a part of a church that got it wrong so many times? We get it wrong quite a bit. The early church leaders got it wrong quite a bit. In fact, one commentator had this to say. He said the 12 were all of them Galileans, that is Hebraic Jews, and were suspected of favoring the widows of Hebrew families rather than those of Greek heritage. Check this out. Their reputation of immaturity preceded them. This conflict that we see in one verse, in one verse of the early church, this is a powder keg. This is personal. This is serious. This is life and death. There's so much baggage coming into this conflict. This has church split written all over it. This has relationship disintegration written all over it. And what happens next is against all odds. What happens next is absolutely, ridiculously underwhelming. And it's underwhelming in the sense that it is profoundly anticlimactic. You can read along the next few verses here. This is what happens in response to this complaint. So the twelve, the twelve disciples, gathered all the disciples together. They call a congregational meeting and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word, uh, the ministry of the word of God, in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This is how this goes down. This is how they navigate this division and conflict. One side raises a concern. The other side listens. And they make a proposal to work together. Shockingly, boringly simple. Right? This is not a Jerry Springer episode. There's not many TV dramas that are built around this plot line. Wait, one side speaks, the other side listens, and they make a proposal. So what's going on here? And if you're looking at this, you might be tempted to think, and I sort of thought this at first when I read this, the disciples, the the apostles, the early church leaders sound a little dismissive. They maybe even sound a little arrogant. 
You know, we, what we're doing is really important. It's the ministry of the word. What you're doing, that doesn't matter as much, so why don't you guys take care of this yourself? I actually really don't think that's what's going on here, and I'll explain why in a minute, why I'm, I'm fairly convinced that that's not the posture that they have. But what they are doing, I think, is this. They're recognizing their limitations. They're, they're channeling the inner Clint, Clint Eastwood saying, a man's got to know his limitations. This is actually, in my opinion, outstanding leadership. You see, the early church leaders, with all their baggage and all their flaws and all their failures in the past, respond to this complaint. And they look at this complaint and they say, this situation is serious and we are not the best equipped to deal with it. We don't have the skills. We don't have the language. We don't have the communication abilities to meet these needs. We are Hebraic Jews. And this situation this life and death situation needs people who can more effectively speak into it. We know what we are called to, we know what we are gifted at, and we need help. We need help, we need help. And this is why I believe that their posture is actually one of humility and not of arrogance, because of the next verse, because of the very next thing that is said. This proposal pleased the whole group. If you have your Bibles open, you should underline that right now. Because you want to know what? That's a miracle. That never happens. You ever been a part of a PTA, an HOA, a church committee? Yeah, that doesn't happen. You don't ever hear a proposal made that pleases everyone. Against all odds, though, that's what happens. It's a miracle. This proposal would not have pleased the whole group if it had come from a place of arrogance and pride and dismissal. It would have just revealed deeper issues that would have wrecked this community sooner or later. I believe the church leaders heard this complaint, this legitimate life and death complaint, and they respond with humility, and this proposal pleased the whole group. Now look, look at this. Look at how this plays out, how this proposal plays out, what the response is from the community. The men and women of the community, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And so there's the partnership component. This is actually fairly obvious, I think. You see this laying of hands. You see this prayer over them. This is the church leaders endorsing them. This is saying, we recognize you. What you're doing matters. We're here for you. We support you. We do this all the time in the church. Even nowadays, we pray for our missionaries. We lay hands on people. We commission people to do great works. This is a sign of partnership all throughout Scripture. That's obvious. What's less obvious is, look at these names. Look at the names that are chosen. They're Greek. Those are Greek names. There's not a Hebrew name among them. These are Greek individuals. These are people who speak the language. These are people who know the depth and severity of the issue that they're trying to address. Here's the deal. They're almost certainly the individuals, some of them at least, maybe all of them, the same individuals who raised this complaint in the first place. This, against all odds, is a healthy way to navigate conflict. What could have been this massive schism, this chasm in the church that would have separated two groups of people, all of a sudden has become something where they're working together and they're using their gifts and they're even using their past 
culture, their history, their baggage, what they've brought into the situation to make a difference. Against all odds, God is able to use even division and conflict. I would say especially division and conflict to make a difference in a community. Because that's the kind of God he is. That's what he does. He loves to work against all odds. Now, I want to I detour just for a second, just for a second, to talk about what's not in this passage. You see, because if we, as we translate this to our lives, as we translate this response to conflict, one side speaks, the other side listens, they work together to find a solution. As we translate this into our church communities, into our small groups, into our marriages, into our workplaces, it's really, really, really important for us to notice what's not in this passage. There's a couple of doctors named Dr. John and Julie Gottman. They're marriage counselors, therapists, researchers. They have spent literally thousands of hours studying relationships and conflict. And they, one of their most well-known findings is what they call, I love this, the four horsemen of relationship, uh, relationship apocalypse. It's like a good dramatic name. That's what, I don't know, the preacher in me likes that. Oh, that's a great name. The four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse. And they've said that the presence of these four things, these four dynamics, when they go untreated, when they go unresolved, whether it's marriages or communities or dating, family dynamics, what have you, when they go unresolved, they can predict relationship disintegration up to 90% of the time, over 90% of the time, excuse me. That's a big number. That's remarkable accuracy. These four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse exist in just about any relationship you've ever had that I ever have. They exist within every community. But when they go unresolved, their effects are devastating. They're cumulative. They build up over time. And so here they are, four horsemen of relationship apocalypse. The first one of these is criticism. Now, isn't, wait, I just saw this. I just read this passage. One group criticized the other group. I would actually say, no, they didn't criticize. They, they filed a complaint. They, they complained about something. Specifically, they complained about an action or an inaction, something that wasn't happening that they want to do. See, criticism is different from complaining. When you complain about something, you're addressing a specific action, maybe a specific wording, a specific behavior that someone has done. But when you criticize, you are attacking a person. It's not about the issues. It's about you. Anyone who's ever driven in tight traffic is probably guilty of criticism. Because that person who cut you off in traffic, they didn't cut you off because, oh, I bet they were running late. I bet they spilled coffee on their tie. Maybe they had to run home. Maybe they have a sick relative they're on the way to see. You know, no, that person cut you off because they're a jerk. They're in fact king of the jerks. I bet their whole family's full of jerks. They're a terrible person. That's why they cut you off. It's not about the behavior. It's about the person. Now, when we cut people off or, or when we make mistakes, or when we lash out, wow, I just had, I had a bad day. It was my circumstance. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Wow, you would, there's the subtext. There's these other things going on. I'm not a bad person. I maybe did something bad. Criticism attacks the person, doesn't address the behavior. What would criticism have looked like in Acts chapter 6? <sighs> you Galileans, you Hebra uh, Hebraic Jews, you always do this. You're so selfish. You're so proud. You think you're better than everyone. You never think about anyone else. You're selfish and you're wrong. Criticism attacks the person. It doesn't address the behavior. The second one of these is contempt. It's kind of like criticism on steroids. Not only are you attacking a person, but you're doing it from a place of profound superiority. 
I'm better than you, and I know it. I'm better than you, and I know it. And it usually manifests itself mockery, sarcasm, biting humor. You can imagine uh, a husband gets home from work and plops down on the couch, and the wife, whoa, oh, I didn't know I had another child to take care of. Oh, this is neat. I've been taking care of kids all day, and look at you. Oh, you tuckered out. You need a nap? Sarcasm, mockery, biting humor. It comes from a place of superiority and arrogance. Contempt, by the way, is, is really dangerous. Now, the Gottmans say that this is by far the number one cause of relationship disintegration. This is when things really fall apart. And the reason for that is the antidote to contempt is humility. And boy, it's tough to learn humility. It's tough to craft a culture of humility in your marriage, in your workplace, in your family, in your church, because that means you have to do work before the conflict happens. You have to craft a culture beforehand. So contempt, when left unaddressed, can be really, really deadly. What would contempt have looked like from the early church? Oh, oh, that's cute. Oh, you guys uh, have some issues with your widows? Oh, that's, that's really neat. I'm sorry, we're changing the world over here. Look, we're preaching. Have you, thousands, thousands of people have come to faith. Oh, by the way, you included. Uh, I'm sorry, we're all full up on petty complaints today. Why don't you come back tomorrow when you have something worthwhile? You can't organize a meals ministry on your own? Oh, boy, that's really sad. Contempt wrecks relationships. The third one is defensiveness. This one's a little bit more straightforward. You hit me, that's all right. I'm going to hit you back three times harder. I am coming back at you. Yeah, that's fine. You can critique me. I have my list that I've been waiting to bring to bear against you. Defensiveness says, I don't need to take responsibility because quite honestly, I'm doing enough and the problem is on you or the problem is out there and it results in finger pointing. Anyone who ever follows politics, guess what? That's what you're seeing. Oh, you flip-flop, you Democrats, you're a bunch of flip-floppers. No, you Republicans, no, you flip-flop over here. Who's right? Yeah, they're both flip-floppers. This is what politicians do because this is what people do. It's what we do. And we love to point fingers and we don't like to take the blame. Defensiveness in the early church, defensiveness in Acts 6. Well, yeah, I guess we overlooked some widows. We've been a little busy. You know what? Uh, if you guys, you Hellenistic Jews, weren't so consumed with yourselves, if you were a little more willing to serve, maybe a little bit more willing to help out around here, maybe if you gave a little bit more, our resources and our time wouldn't be stretched so thin. Defensiveness says, I'm going to hit you back harder than you hit me. And the last one is stonewalling. We shut down. That's it. I'm done. This is too much. Too much negativity. Too much criticism. Too much anxiety around this relationship, and I'm done. And someone shuts down. And it's usually not an angry shutting down. It's not usually a violent, uh, vitriolic departure. It's usually really sad. Someone just kind of fades away. And maybe you've been a part of church communities where you've just kind of faded away in the past. And that even kind of confirms your stonewalling because you're, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure even, uh, anyone even noticed. This happens in marriages. This happens in workplaces. And stonewalling in the early church would have looked like this never gets recorded. This conflict, this division, it's like it never happened because those communities just drift apart. They fade away. And we have two separate churches down the block from each other and things are left unresolved. Now, as we wind down, as we are talking about conflict in the church, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our workplace, I want to make one thing really, really, really clear. And, and hear me on this. 
it is not, it is not sinful to be hurt. It is not sinful to be disappointed. It's not sinful to be angry. No, the Bible makes that really clear. It's not, it's not sinful that you've been disappointed in your marriage or confused or angry in your marriage or in your dating relationships or in your workplace or in the church. It's not sinful. And those feelings of hurt and disappointment and anger, man, they can lead to some really sinful places. Those things can fester over time. They can build up. That angst can build. The frustrations can build. And they can go to some really dark and sinful places if they don't get addressed. They can lead to relationship disintegration. So as we navigate, what does it look like for us to have healthy relationships in our our marriages, in our church, in our families? I want to ask you a question. What horse do you ride into battle? Conflict's real. It's going to happen. It's probably happened today for some of you already. What horse do you ride into battle? What's your go-to? Do you want to criticize? Do you want to attack the person? You always do this. You never do this. It's not about the issue. It's about that person being despicable. Is it contempt? Is it from a place of superiority and arrogance? Is it defensiveness? If you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Is it stonewalling? Do you just shut down? Is it a mixture of all of these? Hear me out loudly and clearly. These dynamics exist in every relationship, some degree or another, and have to be navigated. They exist in every church, some way or another, have to be navigated. What horse do you ride into battle? Identifying what your go-to is, identifying which of these wants, uh, wants to hijack the relationship and hijack the conflict and turn something that could be really productive and healthy into something disastrous, identifying that is the first step. And if you're not sure, ask someone you're close to. Ask your spouse. I'm sure they have a really good idea which one is yours. Ask a family member. My wife tells me mine is defensiveness. And uh, you know when I think about that? That's ridiculous. How dare you say to me? In fact, if you... Yeah. She's right. I was pre-law. I've always got like an Excel spreadsheet in my head of all the things I want uh, to address with other people. Or if I, get, if I get criticized, I'm coming right back at you. That doesn't honor Jesus. That doesn't honor my wife. That doesn't honor my relationships. Or I can be really defensive as a person. So what do we do right here, right now, if we are in the middle of conflict? Let me also say, I'm not, this isn't a passive-aggressive sermon. We're not facing like some huge, massive issue in the church. There's not some looming darkness, you know, something I'm trying to address. The reality is we're just a church filled with people. And there's probably some conflict going on here. There's probably ways that this church has hurt you or disappointed you. Or maybe your small group has. Or your friends here at the church have. And we have to figure out how to navigate that in a healthy way. Also, just, we've grown a lot as a church. Deer Creek is larger than it's been in 12 years. Our budget is larger than it's ever been. Uh, God is doing great. We've had more professions of faith in the last year than the previous 10 years combined. This is awesome. And it's change. And people can fall through the cracks. And people can get confused and hurt and disappointed when there's change. And we've got to figure out how we handle this. So if you are in the middle of conflict... If you have frustrations, particularly about the church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to call Dwayne. 303-517-0513. You should call Dwayne. Let him know what you think. No, don't call Dwayne. Call Dwayne if you have an issue with Dwayne. 
And talk to me if you have an issue with me. And talk to Tim. Probably all of us have issues with Tim. Talk to Tim if you have issues with Tim. But get to the source. Get closer to the source. If it's an elder, if it's a small group leader, get to the source of that conflict. Draw closer to whomever that is and start the conversation. And now, this is thus saith Joseph, not thus, thus saith the Lord, so hear me out on this. I heartily recommend, wholeheartedly, don't do it via email. In my humble opinion, email is an awful vehicle for confrontation. I have never sent an email out of a place of anger and hurt and frustration and disappointment that I haven't immediately regretted or regretted very soon thereafter. And I get it. Sometimes you need to put your thoughts on paper. Sometimes you need to really vent on paper and line things up. Absolutely, 100%. Call someone. Meet up with them. You can have your notes with you right there in front of you. You can talk to them, but give them the, at least the opportunity to look you in the eyes and hear you out. At least let them hear your voice as you navigate through this. I heartily recommend don't, don't send emails. We actually have an anti-email policy, an anti-angry email policy on staff. Where really, if we get an angry email, we're, we're not allowed to, repl- to reply. It's something we've committed to as a staff. It's, it's a phone call. It's a meeting. Hey, we want to sit down. We want to look you in the eyes. And we do this. This seems really cheesy. It's called remaining open-handed. This is one of our staff values. We have it plastered on the wall in there. We talk about this all the time. Uh, we really have this as a value because of me. <laughs> it's probably something that I have uh, contributed to through bad example. But we want to go into conflict open-handed. If you've been hurt by Deer Creek, confused by Deer Creek, frustrated with Deer Creek, look, we want to hear from you. We want to we receive whatever you have to say, and we want to partner with you to help figure things out because we don't want anyone to fall through the cracks If you have frustrations, church, marriage, work, get close to the source. Now, if you have needs, if you're in a place of hardship, if you feel like you have fallen through the cracks, your life is falling apart, your marriage is falling apart, you're having job and financial difficulties, you need to say something. We want to invite you to speak up because caring for people who are hurting is not something that we have to do as a church. It is something we get to do as a church. One of our greatest ministries here at Deer Creek, one of the greatest, most compassionate teams is our mercy and benevolence team here at Deer Creek. And they are one of the least utilized ministries here at Deer Creek. I'm gonna give you an email. and Send an email, set up a conversation, but if you are having financial difficulties, if you can't put food on the table, if your marriage is falling apart and you need help with counseling and resources, reach out. I beg you, say something. Don't just fade away. This is something we get to do as a church, not have to do. And you can see that needs at deercreekchurch.com. Send an email. Someone would love to partner. I wish I could say it's a panacea, right? I wish I could tell you, it's, here's a pill. Here's, it's, it's all fixed. That's not how it works because that's not how conflict works. That's not how life works. But boy, there's going to be someone who cares. There's going to be someone who's praying for you. There's someone who's eager to give resources and time and energy to help navigate whatever you are facing. Now, as we wind down, some of you might be asking a question or might be thinking to yourselves, hey, this is really great, conflict, division, okay, that's nice. What in the world has this got to do with mission? Everything. Everything. This has everything to do with our mission as a church. And we see that, I can confirm that, because of what happens at the end of this passage. One side speaks expresses their frustrations. The other side hears, listens, engages. They partner and watch what God does in response. This is verse seven. 
So the word of God spread. The name of Jesus spread. The ministry of Jesus spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's kind of an odd comment to throw in there. Okay, I get we've handled conflict well, we've navigated this well, that's compelling to people. A large number of priests have become obedient to the faith. They've become followers of Jesus. The priests would have been the individuals least likely to follow Jesus. They would have been the most deeply entrenched against them. They would have been the most offended by the teachings of Jesus. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Why? Why? Because of how they loved one another. Because of how they handled conflict. They had not seen this in their lifetime. They had not seen this decades before. They had not seen this type of response to division and conflict for centuries. And against all odds, God used even this division, even this conflict, to grow his church and to accomplish his, and to accomplish his mission. Tertullian, early church father, he summarized it really well by saying, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us, it brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. My prayer, my hope, my, my, my beseechment of you is let us not be a church marked by lack of conflict, but by love in conflict. That is how we will accomplish the mission that God has given us as a church. That is how you will accomplish mission in your life, in your workplace, in your marriages, in your schools, how you love people who are difficult to love. And we do this not out of our own strength. We do this because this is what God did for us. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. While there was division and conflict between us, that's when Jesus died for us. This is the most compelling piece of Christian mission. This is the most compelling thing a church can do is look how they love one another. So as we end, who do you need to have a conversation with? Who do you need to, to listen to and hear from and take very seriously what they're bringing to you? How can you demonstrate love through how we navigate conflict? What if Deer Creek was a church where people looked at and said, wow, look how they love each other. Not just when it's easy, when it's difficult too. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that against all odds, you, Lord, you use conflict, you use division, you even use pain and suffering and loss to do great and wonderful and redemptive things. Uh, Lord, the clearest example of that is on the cross. You took sin, you took darkness, you took pain, and Lord, because of your great redemptive love, you were able to take even that and to bring life and hope and restoration those who were near were, or those who were far were brought near. Lord, I pray that you would use us. Use us as a community as we pursue mission. Help us to be marked by individuals who, uh, marked as individuals who love one another, who serve one another, who sacrifice for one another, not people who avoid conflict or sweep conflict under the rug. God, help us to be a people, men and women and children, Lord, who, who embrace conflict. Actually pray, God, that you would use even our faults and our flaws and our baggage 
in our history of doing this so poorly, so often, Lord, that you would use it to advance your mission. We need you, God. Every hour we need you. We can't do this on our own. And the good news is, we, Lord, thank you that we don't have to. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.